Hey, Jay, who is the Golden Archer, anyway? Is that some kind of McDonald's tie-in? Oh, Miles, it's so much better than that. Remember how Steve Rogers, then Captain America, quit crime-fighting for a while in the 70s? Oh, yeah, because of Marvel Watergate, right? Basically, yeah. Anyway, Hawkeye decided the world needed Captain America, so he tried to lure Cap back to the good fight. With a rousing appeal to his heroism? Oh, heck no. By whipping up an alter ego and doing some crimes. Okay, I can kind of see the logic there. In a very revealing costume. I mean, it was the 70s. With a fake Shakespearean British accent. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 354 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome, once again, to the party that never ends, to phase two, slash impact two, just impact two this time, of Onslaught. You know... I don't think Onslaught is the party that never ends, because it's actually going to be ending in a few weeks. It's it's just a really long party. It's the party that goes on a little bit longer than everyone wishes it does. Like, by the time you leave, you're really, really done with it. Oh, yeah, like the hosts are getting ready to shut the party down, and then some of the guests are like, hey, let's order pizza, and you're like, oh, no, don't, don't start another thing. Oh, damn. Yeah, yeah, Onslaught is that guest. <laughs> yup. Uh, but, you know, as we've said before, the good in Onslaught is very good, the bad is very bad, it encompasses all of human existence. You, you may be giving it a little bit too much credit. I said parts of it were bad. I, I don't know if I would describe this event as encompassing all of human existence. I, I'm, I'm not sure that it has quite that breadth. I mean, this is not Inferno. I'm selling it, Jay. I'm trying to get a job in Marvel's 1990s marketing department. If you're going to work in one era and commute from the other, I would definitely plan on commuting from the one with lower rent. Oh, you know, that is perhaps a valid point. Okay, I'll, I'll have to think about that. But regardless, so today we are actually going to be talking about some Impact 1 and Impact 2 comics, because we're going to be checking in with Wolverine and Generation X, neither of which really intersects very directly with Onslaught, at least not except for one little bit from Wolverine, which isn't relevant until the end. So we figured, rather than jumping around like we've been, let's do all the Wolverine and all the Generation X. That's right, and the Wolverine, you know, the Wolverine stuff is really relevant to Onslaught. It's the first place where Onslaught's actual nature is revealed. Um, but, yeah, the reveal itself doesn't actually have much impact, does it? No, uh, but it had impact on me when I looked at the page and cackled maniacally, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So before we catch up with ourselves, should we very, very briefly check in with, with Onslaught, go over, you know, what his deal is again? Sure. So Onslaught is Professor X's dark side made manifest as a giant psychic magneto-looking armor guy who's taken over Manhattan, and, y you know, I, I think that's really all we need to know for this episode. Magneto is somehow also involved. We know that. Right. And again, oh boy, howdy, will we get to that. So, what do you say? Do we start with Wolverine? Do we start with Generation X? You know, I move that we start closer to the center and make our way outward. Wolverine is more directly tied to the event itself, so let's start there. Right. So, 
Wolverine. I I feel like I've heard of him before, but what's he been up to? You mean like from the beginning or just recently or as germane to this story arc? Let's go for option C. Okay, so during the Fatal Attractions event a while back, during their final assault on Magneto, Magneto pulled the adamantium out of Wolverine's skeleton, nearly killing him. Logan got by pretty well with a normal skeleton and bone claws, at least after a while, but then Cable's shitty son Tyler had to try to re-adamantium Logan to turn Logan into one of Tyler's henchmen. That didn't work, and it resulted in Logan devolving into a more physically animalistic form and losing some of his his intelligence and his his, human rationality. This has largely meant that he's become a creature more of instinct than of intellect, but also that his body hair has gotten pretty intense and his nose has mostly vanished for some reason, as happens with animals, as I understand. Also, sometimes he licks people now. Oh, yeah, yeah, true. Anyway, since then, the Greek ninja Elektra has arrived from the pages of Daredevil to help Logan regain his humanity, and so far, so good. Now, Jay, I know you're a big Daredevil fan, and Elektra's mostly a Daredevil character, of course. Can we get a quick 101 on just what the hell Elektra's deal is? No. Uh, it, is, it is impossible to quickly sum up Elektra's deal. I will, I will sum up portions of Elektra's deal. How's that? Uh, okay, I'll take it. All right. So Elektra is a ninja. She's affiliated with both the hand bad guy ninjas and the chaste good guy ninjas. Uh, she and Daredevil are on and off intense partners um, in both crime and sex. And uh, she's she's died and been resurrected at this point, I think, only once. But it's going to happen to her again a few times. She's one of the characters who has sort of an intense revolving door relationship with mortality. And also with, with brainwashing, and she's also going to get replaced by a scroll later on. But um, these days, she is mostly on the side of good. She's, she's still a professional assassin, but, you know, it's cool. And uh, she is, is working closely with Wolverine at the behest of her mentor, Stick, who is a possibly immortal, extremely ill-tempered, elderly blind man who carries around a large stick and hits people with it. And the inspiration for Splinter from the Ninja Turtles, kind of. Yeah, if you've seen the Daredevil TV series, Stick is fairly consistently characterized between that and the comics. And costumed. Well, let's go from there to Wolverine number 104, The Emperor of the Realm of Grief, which is a really overwrought title that I immediately fell in love with. Alright. This issue is written by Larry Hama, penciled by Val Semeckis, inked by Chad Hunt, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, we talked about how Logan is clawing his way back, as it were, to a more human state, and thus he has a little bit more of a nose to show for this recovery. I feel like it's uh, similar to Pinocchio. Every time Pinocchio lies, his nose gets bigger. Every time Logan does something to achieve a bit more humanity, his nose also gets bigger. Maybe also every time he lies, he doesn't tend to lie. Maybe, maybe the message here is that lying is functionally synonymous with humanity. Oh, I think that's absolutely it. It's a very Tom King's The Vision moral there. This whole no-nose thing is way deeper than we initially thought. So, we learn from the narrator going in that Scott and Gene have asked Logan to go to the Massachusetts Academy to talk to Gateway and get some info on Onslaught, because we know Gateway's got some kind of tie to Onslaught. 
Right, he's been uh, attempting to kidnap various people, in the case of Chamber, successfully, in the case of Professor X, if I recall, unsuccessfully. But nobody's at the Massachusetts Academy, uh, the Academy also being the same as the new Xavier School, where Banshee and Emma teach Generation X. Right, we're going to get more into this when we talk about the Generation X issues, but as we know from previous Generation X, the team's all over the place. There's a bunch of them in St. Louis. There are a couple of them who are on the road right now. Um, there are three of them who are hanging out in the Danger Grotto, but everyone's forgotten they existed for the time being. So uh, we'll we'll just stick with that as well. This is weird, though, because Logan, who's actually narrating himself, as he tends to do, is very clear that he was given this mission by Scott and Jean. But when he left in Uncanny number 335 to go on this mission, he just thought to himself about having a hunch and only mentioned that division. Hmm. Maybe he got a call from them later on? Hard to say. I mean, that would imply that the X-Men ever call each other, and I'm feeling a bit skeptical. Maybe his nominal hunch, or what he described as a hunch, was actually a telepathic communication from Gene that he felt awkward about describing that way, so characterized as a hunch? He calls it his hunch. Oh god, now you're making it weird. Anyway... Let's talk about the Gateway Onslaught thing, because, you know, we just mentioned that Gateway seems to have some kind of connection to Onslaught, but this is never made clear. So, in our continual goal to make Onslaught make sense, why has Gateway been doing things for Onslaught for a while, and now is no longer doing so? Hmm. Well, we know that Gateway's whole thing is about giving people oblique oblique pointers towards states of self-realization, right? Okay. Can we assume that he was attempting that with Onslaught? You know, I I feel okay about that, and maybe he was bringing Chamber to Onslaught, figuring, hey, this psychic kid can maybe understand what's going on and unravel this mystery, and Xavier's students can help him. Uh, That kind of works. Maybe when he was going after Xavier, it was similarly to awaken that understanding. I like that. Yes. Jay, you get a no prize. Thank you. I will put it right on the wall. So should we give maybe some brief reintroduction to Gateway? It's been a while since we've seen him. Uh, let's do, yeah. Do you want to take the lead? Well, okay, so Gateway is a character who first appeared when the X-Men were in the Outback. He was hanging out at their facility, um, and he has he has a, a bull roar. He has a, a, a spinning whirly gig that he uses to teleport himself and others, but he can also use for, for astral travel, um and to some extent astral travel through time. Whether or not he can use it for physical time travel is something that this issue kind of brings into question. It's not something we've seen him do so far, but it's not something I'm willing to completely discount. Gateway is also silent, with I think one very brief exception in Generation X, so if he has something to tell you, he's probably going to open a portal to that thing, or something that is related to that thing. Right, and since the Outback era, he has moved to the roof of the new Xavier School due to some oblique connection with Monet of Generation X. We'll find out more about that. Now, right now, that bull roarer, that whirly gig, is just sort of sitting on the roof, and Logan picks it up with his kitty cat paws that I assume he has in this stage of animalistic regression. Gateway grabs it, opens up a portal, and shows Logan something he really didn't want to see. That being a scene from Wolverine number 57, when Matsuo Tsurayaba poisoned Mariko Yoshida, Logan's almost wife, 
And Logan then had to kill her to end her pain because the poison was extremely, extremely painful. It was blowfish toxin. Uh, listeners, if you're ever around blowfish toxin, don't like eat it or stab yourself with it, please. Yeah, yeah, that's that's generally considered a bad idea. I do really like what Val Semeckis does with the art here, though. Because, you know, Semeckis has a a consistent, specific style, but the Logan in the flashback looks so much more kind of stereotypically human than this exaggerated, almost cartoonishly animalistic Logan who is watching the flashback. It's nice. I just realized something that I had never thought of before, and I feel ridiculous for never thinking of it before, but Wolverine almost exactly devolved into the Beast with No Name from Kitty's Fairy Tale. You know... That's kind of true. Like, physically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he looks a little less Tasmanian devil, but only a little less Tasmanian devil. And I I can't imagine that was deliberate, but it's kind of a remarkable connection. So now I'm just thinking of this version of Logan, like with the extra body hair and the no nose, but he's crossing his arms and he's wearing backwards jeans and a sports jersey on someone's t-shirt. Do you remember when the Tasmanian Devil was like the coolest fictional character in the world if you were in middle school? I do not. It was totally a thing. Everyone had Tasmanian Devil, or Taz as they called him, t-shirts. And he was dressed like that in a lot of them because the 90s were a strange time. Huh. Anyway... Logan staggers off from the emotional pain, including almost off the roof, but he's caught by Electra, who followed him here. That's convenient. It is really convenient. She's there because Stick's ghost had told her to help Logan rediscover his humanity, because that's the kind of thing that he does. It is so odd that of all the characters in the Marvel Universe, Electra is the one that shows up for this role. But in this run of Wolverine, obviously we're only covering a little bit of it, it bizarrely works. It works so well that in the MC2 universe, they have a daughter named Wild Thing. Okay, first of all, that's an odd thing to name your kid. But second, this actually kind of works for me, and that's because a lot of Elektra's story is about clawing back your identity from forces or from events that have taken it away or split it or diluted it. Awesome. Although that just makes me think that the person who could benefit from her friendship even more would be freaking Havoc. I mean, okay, so um, in in the Earth of Mutant X, uh-huh. she is totally his kid's nanny. Electra? Mm-hmm. Oh man, I feel great about that, although it's really weird to think of her as a nanny. I mean, she's also still a ninja superhero, but yeah. Well, ninja nanny. It's probably best to uh, have some self-defense skills if you're a nanny in the Marvel Universe. Well, especially in that Marvel Universe. Just don't be like Nanny from the right and Hellions. She's, I mean, she's delightful, but she's also terrible. And Logan tells her, You can tag along if you want, but school is definitely not in session up here. Getting info out of Gateway is like meditating in the desert while eating nothing but locusts dipped in honey. Sometimes the answers you get are a bit baked. That's a very specific metaphor. I feel like the locust dipped in honey is a reference to something, but this is just such a delightfully Larry Hama line. I love the way he writes Logan. So Electra tries to engage Gateway in conversation and absolutely fails, but when she mentions Gateway, that Gateway is as much of a pain as stick, Gateway picks up his whirly gig again and shows her her own worst moment. But hers is, um... I mean, I don't think this literally happened. Again, I don't know old Daredevil, 
but she's on Charon's ferry crossing the river Phlegathon, where she sees her dead dad and sees hand ninjas sacrificing themselves to resurrect her. Like, I do appreciate that her version of the realm of death is from Greek mythology. It makes sense. I mean, she's Greek, but the thing is, I don't think many Greek folks in the 90s, like, hold with that level of ancient mythology. That'd be like if the Finnish branch of my family believed the world came from seven golden eagle eggs and one iron one, when in fact they were pretty standard Lutherans who did not believe such things. Oh, that's much less fun. I mean, I agree. So this is this is pretty literally, with with the qualifier that I, I don't recall whether or not we saw much of Dead Electors, I view, this is, this is pretty li- literally about the time she died and then got brought back to life. And got brought back sort of evil, but um, got got her, her soul purified by the intense feelings of Daredevil. Whoa, it's like a kiss from Prince Charming, but it's feelings from Prince Mopey. Yeah, they're, they're, the, the cosmology of, of the hand and all of their weird shit is, is a lot, and I'm really glad it's something that we don't have to go very deeply into. <laughs> that is reasonable. That would be another episode, or three. Episode hell, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> anyway, this makes it clear. Gateway is showing the two of them the worst experiences ever, but Logan isn't here to just be sad. He needs to know what's up with Onslaught. And as he mentions that, suddenly they're inside the X-Mansion. And there are lots of portraits of various teams on the wall, which does make me think that Elektra must see Psylocke in one of those portraits and be super weirded out that their outfits are just color-swapped versions of each other's. A fact, as I've mentioned on the show before, that I discovered when I saw their action figures next to each other in an old secondhand store. They're literally the same sculpt. They are! It's just that one wears purple and one wears red. Yep. Elektra hasn't really been following the X-Books herself, so she has no idea what's up. So Logan tells her, um, in, in a voice that sounds suddenly much, much less, and much more, um, I don't know about Stan Lee, but sort of intermittent X-Men narration. Professor Charles Xavier, the man who gave meaning and purpose to my life, the founder and the guiding light of the X-Men. A man whose frail body is confined to a wheelchair, but is by far the most powerful psi talent in the world. This once kind and just man has been transformed into the monstrous evil entity who calls himself Onslaught. I question the use of the word frail. We have seen Charles Xavier's body, and that man is ripped as fuck. Also, I would imagine Logan wouldn't like the word frail because that's what Sabretooth always calls the women in Logan's life that he then murders. Mm, I could see Logan adopting a certain level of paternalistic ableism when it came to Xavier, though. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. Anyway, the next vision from here brings them back to the climax of X-Men number 25, the time that Magneto ripped out Logan's adamantium. Elektra, thankfully, is a little less distracted by this, somehow, so she pulls Logan's astral form out of his spiky, screaming body in this memory, and they watch astrally, as a glowing blue Xavier size-apps a glowing red Magneto. And here's where it gets weird. A tiny spiky goblin reaches out of Magneto's astral form and pokes Xavier's astral chest, leaving a little red cancerous growth thing. This, kids, is how babies are made. Yep. When two astral forms love each other very much... Okay, we gotta talk about the way this thing looks, though. 
it looks kind of like an evil school marm to me. Like, I know it's supposed to have white hair because Magneto does, but the way it's drawn and with its exaggerated, like, pointy chin and nose, it just kind of reminds me of Miss Bitters from Invader Zim. It's just, like, so angular and its teeth are so long and it's like a little bug grandma. Oh, I, I, I didn't go to Miss Bitters directly, but I, I can definitely see it now that you've mentioned it. Um, and, and this thing is supposed to look really sinister, and it doesn't. It looks ridiculous. It's goofy as shit. I mean, it certainly looks evil, don't get me wrong, but, like, not evil in a monstrous psychic force way. Evil in, like, a, I don't know, it's gonna steal your shit overnight and put it in different places and then giggle. Yeah, it definitely comes across as more, you know, mischievous than the core of evil and corruption. Okay, Jay, I think this is what Magneto's dark side sounds like. (laughs) What do you think? I think Magneto's dark side sounds exactly like Gilbert Gottfried. Oh, jeez, that's rough. So, this is interesting to me, because... I was wondering, is this Logan's worst physical moment, whereas the Mariko thing was his worst, like, emotional moment? Or is this Xavier's worst moment? Which really begs the question, like, why did Gateway show Logan and Elektra their worst moments before this? Like, presumably he wasn't just being a jerk, he was trying to communicate something so they could better understand this, right? The idea is that he showed them their worst moments to prepare them for the horribleness of this moment. Like, they're, they're pretty clear about thinking that that's what's up, that, that they had to be prepared for the absolute shock of seeing an icky little goblin poke Xavier's psychic chest. I'm an icky elf! But that's—I don't think that's a good idea, Gateway. Like, so I got my COVID booster today, so if I'm a little loopy, that's why. But, I mean, you know, shots are somewhat painful, less of a big deal when you're an adult. But, like, they didn't punch me twice in the nose before they gave me the shot to prepare me for the pain. That doesn't help. That's just more pain. Well, it's different on the astral plane? I don't know, man. This doesn't make a lot of sense. Astral pain on the astral plane. Logan feels like what what Gateway's actually telling him is that Onslaught is, in fact, his fault. Magneto's dark side wouldn't have ever had the power to reach him like that if he hadn't lost it and lashed out like he did. It was the dark inside of himself that laid him open to the touch of Magneto. And that makes me partly to blame, because I was the one who lost it first and pushed Magneto too far. The touch of Magneto reminds me of that that MST3K episode, The Touch of Satan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a... All I remember from that one is that this is where the fish lives. Yeah, yeah. This, this in fact, this metaphorically, this memory is where the fish lives. Electra points out that, you know, this this isn't a guilt trip. This is information that they might be able to use to save Xavier. Oh, uh, we'll put him back together, all right. All the king's horses and all the king's men. But he might never be the same again. Like me. You know, until I saw myself lying there at Magneto's feet, even all hurting like that, I had forgotten what I used to be. I used to be a man. And as they sit on the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters sign, Electra hugs him and says, You still are, Logan. That's... that's genuinely sweet. Aww. But let's talk about this retcon. Let's talk about the evil Magneto Goblin and how that 
I don't know, really changes the nature of Onslaught and maybe removes a lot of the complexity. So, Jay, you and I have talked a lot about this, both on the show and off, Mm -hmm. and um, I'll credit once again Austin Gorton from the Real Gentleman of Leisure's examination site with finding an excellent quote from a creator of the time. This is Mark Wade talking about Onslaught's origin being altered in this way. As created, Onslaught was always just a manifestation of Xavier's darker corners of the mind, with the idea that a dark thought from someone so mentally powerful could take on a life of its own. Everyone seemed excited by that when we pitched it, but as near as I can tell, there were later some second thoughts from my editor and from my co-creator, respectively Bob Harris and Scott Lobdell, that we needed to keep Xavier pure and more heroic, even though everyone has dark moments and the occasional dark thought. I was as surprised as anyone to read that Magneto was somehow involved. Austin, thanks for being better at research than us again, at least as far as quotes. Um, But yeah, that is fascinating to me, that this was clearly backpedaling, that this was some of the creators going, oh crap, we can't have Xavier be responsible for his actions. And they did something that, in a way, removes almost all responsibility. You know what that reminds me of? What's that? Phoenix Retcon. You know, I agree. I think you're absolutely right. Because originally, the Phoenix was supposed to live, but be depowered. This was before it was retcons that it wasn't really Gene. But I think it was... No, I mean mean the choice to retcon it to have not really been Gene. Yeah, absolutely. Because Jim Shooter was adamant that if someone wiped out a solar system, that they had to die. So, I don't know. I mean... Certainly, I'm glad that Xavier is redeemable, and Jean is redeemable, and later on, Bishop will be redeemable. But it really cuts the stakes, and it really cuts the depth from this story. And honestly, I think it's much more interesting to look at the redeemability of characters who have, while not in their right minds, done really awful things. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. I'm actually reminded of something we talked about, was it last episode? Where Random talked about how Dark Beast only made people do stuff they already wanted to do. In all honesty, I think that this entire principle is part of why I like Emma Frost so much as a character. Because she is, in a lot of ways, a redeemed supervillain, and she's a redeemed supervillain who narratively and personally owns her supervillainy in ways that villains who become heroes very rarely get to. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. She's unapologetic. Or she's apologetic, but she's... But either way, it's hers and it was her. Yeah. Well, let's move on to a much less goblin-filled issue, Wolverine number 105, Faces in the Fire, written by Larry Hama, penciled by Val Semeckis, inked by Chad Hunt, Vince Russell, and Harry Candelario, colored by Chris Lichtner and Joe Andriani, and lettered by... You want to say it, Jay? Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So this issue has less a cold open and more of a wet open. Yeah, we start with Logan getting blasted by a fire hose, presumably because he has he has won the children's game on on um, UHF. The thing is, you don't see the fire hose; you just see the fluid being blasted at him as he says, "Keep it coming, boys! I need to be soaked for this to work." Which I gotta say. The ten-year-old in me giggled a lot at this whole thing. Okay, well, he's getting hosed down by firemen, um, which, honestly, that I could just leave it there. Yeah, yeah, fair if, point. If you want, that doesn't really, really change the read. He's doing this not purely for prurient purposes, but so he can rescue people from inside a burning building. 
as he says in the narration, he's just going to leave the big onslaught stuff to the people with fancy powers. He's going to help with the collateral damage. And Logan avoiding the big stuff, helping in small ways, like, that actually really fits this era for him, just being a smaller, quieter, albeit not that smaller quiet, hero. In all honesty, I think it's an approach that fits the character and his powers and his personality a lot better. Like, Wolverine as a street-level hero interests me in ways that Wolverine as, like, a big world-shaking event hero doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, do you remember that time that he got roped into a big plot to resurrect a bunch of people and then his claws got super hot? Uh, That was weird. Are we sure that happened? Are we sure that wasn't a fever dream? I mean, I definitely have those comics. They've never been referenced again. Anyway... On the street, a woman in curlers and a bathrobe calls out to her son, Sean, and her other kid says that Sean went back into the burning building for Mr. Winky, and Logan charges in without a thought. This is what I really like about this era of Logan. He's brought back to the basics, his core, and that core is just straight up helping people who need help. That's who he's become, thanks to Professor X, which is a nice, if perhaps not necessarily deliberate, thematic link to what's going on with Onslaught right now. Thanks to Professor X, and also to some extent thanks to Elektra's influence more recently, which, again, is sort of an interesting and ironic direction for the character. Um, you know, someone who sees themselves as unsalvageable, helping someone else who sees themselves similarly um, really kind of rediscover that purpose. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But this this issue is just sweet. It's straightforward and sweet. And Jay, can we just do this dialogue uh, once Logan does in the burning building find adorable Moppet Sean? You're not a fireman. My mommy told me never to talk to strangers. How come you got a mask? Your mommy was right. But I'm wearing a mask because I'm a superhero. And your mommy told me you came back for Mr. Winky. Is Mr. Winky somewhere in this apartment? Is he an old man? Mr. Winky is a bear, silly. It must be pretty special for you to come back for him, huh? Uh Uh-huh. Let's get you both out of here. Aww. So fire is getting worse and worse as Logan carries Sean out, and Sean is worried that they're gonna die. To which Logan responds, well, superheroes can't die. And when Sean protests that he's not a superhero, Logan gives him his mask and is like, okay, kid, now you're a superhero. It's, it's, it's really sweet. Again, I say, aww. And then things get weird. An old man in a ball cap and jacket directs Logan to the only way out, which is through the heart of the flames. As the Daredevil reader you are, you will recognize this character immediately as Stick, who may or may not be dead at this point. And so Logan covers Sean with his hose down by fireman wet shirt so that he doesn't, you know, burn to death and talks the kid through it as they go through these flames as Logan's hair burns and his fat melts. It's super gross. And when he collapses outside, like Val Semeckis portrays this so well, Logan is still slightly on fire, but he's just covered in bubbling red skin and raw flesh. And you can just you can just feel the pain. So interestingly, he makes the note here that his healing factor doesn't come with pain reduction, a fact that is going to be directly contradicted years later. Will it? I don't remember that part. Yeah, I don't remember exactly which run it's from, but I remember at one point he's talking about that. See, that just makes me think of Gabby, which is to say Honey Badger, which is to say Scout, who very specifically does not feel pain and has a healing factor. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's time to get soaked by firemen again and go back in to save the mysterious old guy. But Sean runs up. Mister, you can't be a hero without your mask. Thanks, Sean. Don't want to get recognized by the bad guys, right? I, I love this. This kid just sees Logan as a hero, just straight up a hero. He sees this mask as the trappings of, of a superhero, not what it actually is, which is something Logan's only wearing to cover his animalistic face that he can't fit his hat over anymore. Back in the building, he finds the old guy pretty quickly, and and since it's Stick or Stick's ghost, um, he proceeds to mock Logan and whack him with his staff a bunch, because that's pretty much what he does. And Logan pretty quickly realizes, oh, this is Elektra's mentor, Stick. I've heard of this guy. He's dead. But in the words of uh, JFK and Bubba Hotep, you think that's going to stop him? And so, so Stick claims that he's here to finish up Electra's process of helping Logan become more human again, teach him the lessons and philosophy he'll need. And Logan assumes that Stick is there to basically finish up the, the lessons Electra was teaching him to help him really become human again. And Stick says, well, actually, bullshit. Yeah, Stick and Electra can't teach Logan anything. They can't fix him. All they can do is tell Logan that a path exists, but Logan himself is the one that has to find it. To which Logan asks, How can I do that? All this was done to me. I got no control over it. Magneto pulled the adamantium out of me and everything went downhill from there. Stick responds, Wrong. When Magneto took the metal out of you, you were the one who gave up on keeping yourself together. He put the fear in you, and it eroded your soul, and it made you forget that every second of our lives we got a fight to keep from slipping back into being the animals we really want to be. And, you know, that's kind of this era of Wolverine, neatly summed up by a guy in a baseball cap who may or may not be dead. And then Stick points the way out of the fire, and Logan leaps out only to be met by the Human Torch there to recruit him for the final battle against Onslaught. Presumably, Logan tells Johnny Storm to hold on a sec because he wants to get hosed down by the fireman just once more for old time's sake. Yeah, you don't want to fight Onslaught unless you've just been hosed down by firemen. You don't want to do anything unless you've just been hosed down by firemen. If you think you're about to die, if you know you're about to fight a feudal battle, you gotta make peace with yourself. You gotta tell your family you love them, and you gotta get hosed down by firemen. Word to the wise. So, yeah, that's two issues of Wolverine, both of which are impact uh, tie-ins to Onslaught, and I think they're pretty good. Uh, what do you think about them both as issues, but also as Onslaught tie-ins? I like the second much better as an Onslaught tie-in than the first, because the ways in which the first ties to Onslaught are frankly terrible. Yeah. But I I like the idea going in. I I like the basic issue. I like Logan and Electra's dynamic. I hate the way Electra speaks. I hate the way Larry Hummel writes Electra's dialogue. It's it's just just ludicrously purple. Yeah, purple should be Psylocke. Electra wears red. Yeah, it, it just it it the the way she talks is is just is is so far over the top that it kills my suspension of disbelief, which is saying something as as a Chris Claremont fan. <laughs> and as a Larry Hama fan in general. Um, but I, I think it's generally solid. I like the other one much better just because one of I'm I'm a sucker for small ground level stories that take place at the fringes of big events. 
Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Speaking of Daredevil, like that one time he fought a vacuum cleaner in Inferno. Yeah, I'm a sucker for that because I think it's funny that he got beat up by a vacuum cleaner. Matt Murdock's life is terrible. Do you think he or Alex Summers has a worse life? That's a really good question, and I think it really depends on the week. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, let's move on from there to the other tie-in we haven't touched yet from both Impact 1 and Impact 2, Generation X. What's their deal? What have they been up to? Okay, so Generation X is the next generation of mutant students, basically the 90s answer to, or the late 90s answer to the new mutants, trained at the Massachusetts branch of the Xavier School by co-headmasters Banshee, Sean Cassidy, and Emma Frost, formerly the White Queen of the Hellfire Club. Right now, they're mostly elsewhere, as we saw they weren't around when Logan went to the school. Jubilee, Sink, Husk, and M, as well as both headmasters, are on their way back from St. Louis, where they were rescuing a brainwashed Sink, who almost ate a baby, but didn't. Well done, Sink. And Chamber and Skin, having finished fighting Carl the Executioner, are on their way to find Professor X to help Chamber with the aftermath of the psychic damage the mysterious onslaught did to him. I feel like this could be one of those examples of irony that your English teacher gives you in high school. There are three other kids involved with the team whose existence Scott Lobdell regularly completely forgets, um, which, but whom he remembers briefly during the story arc. And those are Mondo, who's, who's nominally on the team, but is, is just hanging out at the new Xavier school, not really being noticed by anyone. And Artie and Leech, who are hanging out at the new Xavier school, playing in a treehouse and being adorable Moppets. Indeed. So let's start with Generation X number 18, For the Sake of the Children. This is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Chris Picciolo, inked by Mark Buckingham, and colored by Steve Buccolato, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Before we dive into the plot, can we talk about the sort of visual conceit of the first scene? Oh yeah, yeah, let's do so the the bulk of the kids, the bulk of the characters are currently on a private plane, nominally flying back to Boston from St. Louis. And they're being ridiculous teenagers. I think Scott Lobdell writes Gen X being ridiculous teenagers very well. Sink and Jubilee are blowing bubbles, and the bubbles sort of guide us from panel to panel. And that, and that, for some reason frequently found in this comic X logo wallpaper in the gutters between the panels, really just makes this book feel like nothing except itself. Like, if you looked at any one of these pages, even not knowing which characters were there, you'd be like, oh yes, obviously this is Generation X. Yeah, yeah. Um, man, Pacello's design in this era is so solid. Like, his, his sense of page layout, his sense of connection between the panels. Like, this is, it's it's such a designy comic. I, I don't know if it's clear what that, I, if it's entirely clear what I mean by that, but it's, it's, each each page, each spread is is very much an artifact in and of itself, as well as a narrative piece. And it's strange, because I'm not sure that these pages are necessarily easy to look at. They're very loud, and they're very complex, and the colors are just aggressive. But, like, that's not a bad thing in a way. And maybe I'm reaching here. I have been known to do that. But in a way, I think that overly intense visual style kind of channels the intensity of adolescence where everything just matters so much and just hits so hard all the time. Yeah, it makes sense for this this comic to be oversaturated and candy colored like it feels right it feels true to the spirit of the stories we're getting totally 
But the narrative framing device, as opposed to the visual framing device, is a much calmer one. Right. Um, Paige Guthrie is, is writing a letter back to her family. Uh, specifically to her brother, Cannonball, who himself is no stranger to being on teenage teams of X characters. And she she no longer does the Kentucky, extreme Kentucky dialect in, 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 in her writing. Yeah, uh, contrasted to Cannonball, who in, I believe, an issue of Uncanny X-Men after he joins the team does yep. write with his accent. Yep, it is, it is definitely a narrative choice that was made. Paige does not do this, and I, I appreciate that. So I don't think that it's wrong that Sam wrote with the accent. I think Paige would have as well, except uh, we do know that she's a little embarrassed about being Southern, so she tries to hide her accent except when she gets upset. That's that's not how accents work, man. This is the Marvel Universe. Maybe it is. All right. So on the flight back from St. Louis, Banshee realizes that their plane is headed not to Boston, but to Canada. And when he brings this up with Emma, she says, oh, you should go talk to the pilot. And instead, he walks straight out of the plane midair. Yeah. And everyone's like, wait, what the hell? Also, the plane's being depressurized and Jubilee, when she was fucking with Sink's sweater, unbuckled his seatbelt. And now he's being pulled out. Well, they they narrowly prevent Sink from being sucked out into the sky and get the door closed. Um, But they're all really baffled, including Banshee, who comes to himself singing in the middle of the sky with no idea why he's there. So clearly, psychic shenanigans are afoot. And oh, and there's one to, to the person who asked if we'd ever seen Banshee singing on, on panel. Uh, yes, yes, he is. Now, we don't know whether he's singing badly or well. Uh, we don't have any, like, particularly beautiful musical notes near the speech bubbles, and we don't have any particularly ugly ones that are all, like, you know, zigzaggy, so it's hard to say. But at least adequately. Um, and the plane lands in Montreal. The kids are suspicious. They briefly attack Emma, who makes their powers backfire. And they are headed to her mansion in Montreal, which Emma tells them was going to be their home for a very long time. And when they get there, the kids, I mean, they're young, but they're acting like they're much younger. They're, they're giddy and they're childish, like they're, I don't know, freaking six-year-olds or something. Yeah, they're slipping in and, out of, in and out of character in ways that intentionally feel very, very off. Yeah, it's creepy. Like, this issue manages to be that level of candy-colored and that level of silly, and also there's just this this creeping dread underneath everything. Ooh, you know what else is creepy? Uh, would that be Toad? That would be Toad, who is lurking in the shadows watching all of this. Oh man, the last time we saw Toad, if I recall correctly, it was in X-Force. It may have even build, been during the Liefeld era of X-Force, and seeing Bacello's Toad contrasted to that. Like, Toad's wearing his old medieval-looking costume, the kind that looks like it's from a discount bin at a Ren Faire, but he's just all... His, his posture and his build are just... I know we use the word exaggerated a lot with Pacello, but exaggerated. And his hair just completely covers the top half of his head. So his nose, his pointy nose, is just sticking out. And there's his gigantic grin underneath that. We're going to see Pacello draw Toad again years and years and years from now. And it's a very consistent look. As I recall, in that era, Husk is also present. And she and Toad are kind of involved? It's weird. It's complicated to a degree that will definitely be a cold open someday. Indeed. 
So back at the school, I guess Logan isn't there yet or has already left. And the new handyman tries to figure out whether anyone actually attends the school he now works at. Yeah, he showed up an issue or two ago, and here we find that A, his name is Chevy, and B, he was one of the mob that murdered mutant Dennis Hogan in X-Men Prime number one, and he's got this job because his dad tried to find him a job kind of out of sight. I guess not noticing the name Xavier in the name of the school. And he, for his part, is is at least pretty contrite about his role. Um, he'd probably be even contriter if he knew that he'd help trigger Onslaught. Yeah, very directly. Dennis Hogan getting killed was like the thing that broke Professor X. Well, that or the weird little school marm goblin. On a happier note, Artie and Leech are hanging out in the Danger Grotto, being cuties and playing in their treehouse. So Artie speaks in emoji now. I mean, I don't think they had the word emoji back in 1996, but like, he used to project these big images of what he was imagining, and now it's just little smiley faces and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it varies somewhat, but it, it seems like he's, he's getting more able to precisely project what he wants to convey. It is pretty adorable, so I can't complain. Uh, also in the Danger Grotto, Mondo has a conversation with apparently himself, actually Black Tom, who um, is the person who made a tree clone out of him and sent him to Generation X. That's the Mondo who's there now. Actual Mondo is somewhere else. That'll be a big deal, but not yet. Comics! And somewhere along I-84, Skin and Chamber are still trying to make their way to Xavier as Chamber's condition gets even worse. I have to wonder whether Chamber's all messed up just because of the general psychic bad stuff in the air all over the globe, or if it's his specific prior exposure to Onslaught when Gateway briefly kidnapped him. I would wager both. Yeah, yeah, it could be. It sucks to be Jonathan Starsmore, as usual. It sucks to be most telepaths in the time of Onslaught, which we'll get to in Generation X number 19, Don't Wait Up, also written by Scott Lobdell and penciled by Chris Patello and inked by Mark Buckingham and colored by Steve Buccalato and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Oh my god, it's the same It's the same creative team. Uh, this also has the mysterious DL as someone who helped with lettering. I have no idea what that's about. DL. If you're out there, DL, give us a call. We won't tell your secrets, we promise. Also, like, letter some stuff for us, I guess, because apparently that's a thing you can do. Or, or whatever. You know, follow your heart, DL. Man, so I have, I have missed Chris Patello's weirdness so much. This issue, um, the title page is Chamber, Skin, and Sink Riding a Giant Frog. Just cause. Chamber says, Any idea what this story is about? To which Skin responds, Can't tell from here, amigo. And Sink adds, I have to go, guys. I'm needed on page four. And then a tiny frog narrates backstory until it's shooed away. Yup. This book, like, it really toes the line between, like, quirky and just absurd, but I feel okay about that. Would you say that it toads the line? Oh, oh, I absolutely would. Uh, also, all of these frogs and toes, toads make the noise nibbed, and I am confused by this, but I feel okay about it. You know, I think that actually might be a better frog-slash-toad noise than ribbit. Nibbed. Nibbed. See? No. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really there for it. Well, two people who are here for this scene are 
two members of, of Emma's Montreal house staff. I love them. Okay, we have a big green guy and a big pink guy, and the big pink guy doesn't talk. I mean, your brain went where my brain went, right? Yeah, but I don't think they're already unleashed because we saw already unleashed in the treehouse, and it would make no sense for them to be in this role here. And these guys seem to have worked for Emma for a fairly long time, and they drink coffee and stuff. Like they're they're definitely adults. But yeah, they're they're just a very large pink man and a very large green man. But what are the odds that a pink and green friend pair, where the green person talks and the pink person doesn't, like two of those? I don't know. Maybe it's just a thing in the Marvel Universe. Uh, maybe. I mean, eventually in Gen X number 25, we'll learn that the green guy is named Bumpkin. Not sure about the pink guy. Um, But wait a minute, Jay. If they've been with Emma since her Hellfire Club days, and we know they're really tight, you know who else are a pair of really tight friends from Emma's Hellfire Club days? My God, Miles, are you bringing back Harvey and Janet? I absolutely am. And furthermore, I will say that Bumpkin and Pink Guy Who Doesn't Talk and Harvey and Janet probably are buds, and I bet they all play bridge together. Oh, unquestionably. So Harvey and Janet are in Montreal these days, then? Uh, yes, I guess so. All right, that works for me. They're both fluent in French, definitely. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, Harvey had a little bit more experience because he took French in high school. Janet didn't, but Harvey's actually really good at teaching. They, they have a really good dynamic. Well, and you've got to be good with languages to work for the Hellfire Club for that long. Yeah, that's true. Although I guess it's just Quebec where you really have to speak French. I don't know. I'm in America. That, that, that's where Montreal, Miles, Montreal is in Quebec. We're an educational podcast. It's, in fact, the only city in Quebec that I've ever been to. Oh, Okay. I've never been there myself. Anyway, uh, the large pink man and large green man are concerned about Emma's state of mind, understandably so, as she is doing her best to basically be domestic mom. She is trying to cook. This part is so great because she clearly has no fucking idea how. Right, she's trying to make a tomato omelet, but um, has no tomatoes, so she just dumps in a bottle of ketchup. Okay, I'll eat almost anything, and... Yeah, that's a big ol' no. The kids agree. Um, They come down to breakfast, variously ludicrously attired. Jubilee's a gangster, Monet's a cheerleader, Husk is a clown, and Sink is a hippie. Okay, I understand that we're supposed to know that everybody's acting out of character, and there's some, like we said, psychic shenanigans going on, but... I get the impression that Scott Lobdell was just, hey, Chris Pacello, just basically draw whatever. And Chris Pacello was so excited to do so. The kids come down to breakfast and it's weird. It surely is. So it's clear that Emma's sort of controlling them, that she's keeping them cheerful and unquestioning. But she doesn't seem entirely in control of the situation either. This really brings along that level of dread, and I think the intense whimsy of this just adds to that dread. Yeah, I would, I would dec- describe this as violently whimsical, like almost in, in arcade levels of, of weird. Oh, that's a good way of putting it. And, and speaking of, of violent whimsy, the frogs and toads around are reporting all of this back to Toad. Of, of all the moments, we see the kids sort of moving around the day in their sort of weird semi-mind-controlled way, and there's a particularly great bit of dialogue as they're hanging out in and under a tree, and Monet says to Jubilee, Who needs to think? Ms. Frost would never let anything bad happen to us. Jubilee responds, I don't know what makes me more nervous, Em. 
The idea that we all suddenly trust the White Queen? Or the idea that you and I agree on something? You're all being silly. Just relax. Have fun. And meanwhile, in her coloring book, Monet is writing, Help us, in red. Oh, it's so good. And they are in danger because the frogs summarily somehow gnaw through the trunk of a giant-ass tree and send it crashing into the house. But everybody's too calm and cheerful to panic. The helpful pink and green helpers bring this to Emma's attention, but she's not really interested and just boots them out of the house. Um, and, and seems to go back to her reverie until a kid version of M shows up in Emma's mind to tell her off and to explain the situation. I've decided you are mean. M? In a way. I came inside your mind to tell you to let us go. We're inside my mind. Isn't it neat? I didn't know you had this much power. I didn't come here to talk about me. Look, Queen Lady, there's this psionic creature, Onslaught, and he's taking over the whole planet. He is bad. Plus, that since he is pure Psy energy, he's affecting you and Chamber and some others. You don't even know it, but you're trying to protect Generation X the way you couldn't the Hellions. Subconsciously, you're keeping us safe by keeping us from the fight. But now we're in big trouble with the pathetic creature called Toad. We can't fight back until you let go of our minds. The M who appears in Emma's mind is, is much younger than we see the one we see on panel. So this is, I think this is one of Emma's little sisters, the, the pair who are currently occupying her body. Yeah, this is Nicole St. Croix, showing up, I think, on panel for the first time ever as herself. So anyway, as it turns out, Toad has been working with a guy who goes by the surgeon, whom you can forget because he never shows up again after this, who has the power to, in Toad's words, Transform living beings into something more. He's already souped up the local amphibians, and now it's time for the Generation X kids, but fortunately Emma's here to talk some remarkably gentle sense into Toad. Emma? What are you doing here? This is my home, Mort. Remember? I let you stay here because I felt badly after the Hellfire Club laughed at your request to join us. You told me then that you just wanted to go somewhere quiet. To be alone. To think. This place was supposed to be your sanctuary. It's where I've allowed other mutants like you and Surgeon the chance to live a normal life. So what happened? But, but don't you get it? Look around, my people love me. They love me here. This isn't a home or a sanctuary. It's a kingdom and I'm the king. Is that so wrong? You tell me, Mort. When Magneto used to abuse you, lord over you, treat you as if you were less than nothing, was that all right? Is it somehow acceptable now because you're the one in charge? But it's different. It's different. And at this point, Sean, Cassidy, Banshee, and Alpha Flight Sasquatch, whom he's gone to for help, show up. Emma apologizes awkwardly. Jubilee and Monet declare a truce, and everyone hugs. So that's all fine, and let's talk about the story as a whole, but... 
Right now, let's talk about Toad, and let's talk about continuity. Because this doesn't really seem to add up, does it? Right, because it's been a while since Emma's been involved with the Hellfire Club, hasn't it? Yeah, and since then, there was a long period where Toad was running the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And justifying why they were called the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And he was very confident, he was very erudite, he was very full of himself. This version of Toad, who seems mostly to be responding to the abuse he had under Magneto, it's almost as if that X-Force Brotherhood of Evil Mutants stuff never happened. Yeah, Toad is one of the characters who's been characterized least consistently over the years, and across media, because you see very, very different versions of him, even in multiple live-action movies. Oh yeah, do you remember the version of him from the first X-Men movie? Very different. Extremely, yeah. I mean, I guess it's possible that maybe the Brotherhood fell apart and then Toad tried to join the Hellfire Club, but again, that doesn't make sense. Emma hasn't had any sway in the Hellfire Club in ages. It would be frickin' Shinobi Shaw now asking about Toad's tongue. Well, she hasn't had any direct involvement. That doesn't mean that she's not keeping a finger on the pulse of what's going on and wouldn't, for example, be there if, if Mord had applied for membership and failed. I don't know. I can't imagine her voluntarily being in the same room as Shinobi Shaw. No, no, no. I assume that she'd, she'd find him after he left. Okay, that's reasonable. After he, he, you know, hopped out the back door in disgrace. So, there we have it. Generation X, uh, much more of a two-parter than the Wolverine stories, and arguably even more tangentially related to Onslaught. What did you think? So, I liked this story. I thought it was fun. I thought it was weird and and felt didn't feel super high stakes but but there was there was a degree of of earned suspense to it um and i think it did a good job connecting obliquely to the big event without being particularly beholden to it yeah and something i appreciated and i could see some people seeing this as a flaw but i enjoyed that the ostensible villain of the arc toad is almost irrelevant to what's going on like the yeah. real creepy stuff the stuff with actual weight is just emma doing her best to guide Onslaught's brainwashing of her in a way that will keep her students safe, because her last students, you know, died. And that is, I'll say, consistent with, with representations of Toad. He is, he is a guy whose who's bids for control and power tend to take place unbeknownst to him in the margins of other people's stories. Yeah, yeah, Toad's life is, is terrible. Sorry, Mortimer. What's not terrible are our listeners, and they've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, In most versions of the Marvel tabletop RPG, Kitty Pride is given the ability to see others in astral form. Is there anything in the comics about this? So I was about to confidently answer no, and then I started looking around just to be on the safe side, and yes, there is. Kind of. In New Mutants number 15, way back in the day, Kitty Pride is being held captive by the White Queen, speaking of, and Ilyana Rasputin astrally seeks Kitty out, and her astral form is seen by both Kitty and Emma. And Emma makes sense. I mean, she's a telepath. But Kitty? I can only assume it's because she's, you know, close to Ilyana, to her, her roommate, to her, her gal pal. But it's enough to set up enough of a precedent to give her that power if they needed to round out her power set for an RPG. And that's kind of fun because, I mean, as a role player, I never want to play a one power pony. Like, I want my character to be able to be useful 
or add to the story in multiple sets of circumstances. And admittedly, phasing is a very versatile power, but also having something... Hey, she's also a ninja. She's also a ninja, that's true, depending on the era. Uh, But adding in something that's very, very different, like being able to see astral forms is kind of And a hacker. And a hacker, true. Kind of a cool trick. Uh, Also, an ice skater and a dancer. Kitty's good at a lot of things. Yeah. Shannon asks via email... How can Wolverine be seen by electronic devices after the Outback arc? He never went through the Siege Perilous and got reset, so he should, he should still have the gift Roma gave him. And to remind uh, everyone, when the X-Men died and came back at the end of Fall of the Mutants, one of the gifts that Merlin's daughter Roma gave them was that they were completely invisible to electronic devices. And for a while, that was consistent, and eventually, uh, not. So, first of all, Wolverine isn't actually the only member of the team with whom that happens. Storm didn't go through the Siege Perilous either. And for both of those characters, my impression is that the invisibility to electronics gradually wore off as writers forgot about it. Uh, apparently Claremont used to joke that the X-Men lost that ability when he left the book, but like... Claremont himself wrote issues before then where Wolverine and Storm definitely showed up on camera. So, uh, sorry, Chris. Yeah, so I'm going to go with with gradually wore off. That seems very reasonable. We're a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's move over, speaking of, to the angry Claremontian narrator. It's really not your fault, Roy. If you'd had the mental fortitude to see through Mike's ham-handed, kind of tragic attempts at manipulation, there might be some additional blame to throw around, but as things are, not even surprised. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Because of Thanksgiving, we're switching our schedule around a little. So next week, we're back with Hawk Talk. And the week after, we're wandering off the beaten path. And into the weeds, well, webs, of Onslaught's more peripheral tie-ins. (laughs) 